Till towards the age of 30, Scott's life has nothing in it decisively pointing towards literature, or indeed towards distinction of any kind, he is wedded, settled, and has gone through all his preliminary steps, without symptom of renown as yet. It is the life of every other Edinburgh youth of his station and time. Fortunate we must name it, in many ways. Parents in easy or wealthy circumstances, yet unencumbered with the cares and perversions of aristocracy, nothing eminent in place, in faculty or culture, yet nothing deficient, all around is methodic regulation, prudence, prosperity, kind-heartedness, an element of warmth and light, of affection, industry, and burgerly comfort, heightened into elegance, in which the young heart can wholesomely grow. A vigorous health seems to have been given by nature, yet, as if nature had said withal, let it be a health to express itself by mind, not by body, a lameness is added in childhood, the brave little boy, instead of romping and bickering, must learn to think, or at lowest, what is a great matter, to sit still. No rackets and trundling hoops for this young Walter, but ballads, history books and a world of legendary stuff, which his mother and those near him are copiously able to furnish. Disease, which is but superficial, and issues in outward lameness, does not cloud the young existence, rather forwards it towards the expansion it is fitted for. The miserable disease had been one of the internal nobler parts, marring the general organization, under which no Walter Scott could have been forwarded, or with all his other endowments could have been producible or possible. Nature gives healthy children much, how much? Wise education is a wise unfolding of this, often it unfolds itself better of its own accord. Add one other circumstance, the place where, namely, Presbyterian Scotland. The influences of this are felt incessantly, they stream in it every pore. There is a country accent, says La Rochefoucauld, not in speech only, but in thought, conduct, character and manner of existing, which never forsakes a man. Scott, we believe, was all his days an Episcopalian dissenter in Scotland, but that makes little to the matter. Nobody who knows Scotland and Scott can doubt, but Presbyterianism too had a vast share in the forming of him. A country where the entire people is, or even once has been, laid hold of, filled to the heart with an infinite religious idea, has made a step from which it cannot retrograde. Thought, conscience, the sense that man is denizen of a universe, creature of an eternity, has penetrated to the remotest cottage, to the simplest heart. Beautiful and awful, the feeling of a heavenly behest, of duty God commanded, over canopies all life. There is an inspiration in such a people, one may say in a more special sense, the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Honor to all the brave and true, everlasting honor to brave old Knox, one of the truest of the true. That, in the moment while he and his cause, amid civil broils, in convulsion and confusion, were still but struggling for life, he sent the schoolmaster forth to all corners and said, Let the people be taught, this is but one and indeed an inevitable and comparatively inconsiderable item in his great message to men. His message, in its true compass, was, Let men know that they are men, created by God, responsible to God, who work in any meanest moment of time what will last throughout eternity. It is verily a great message. Not plowing and hammering machines, not patent digesters, never so ornamental, to digest the produce of these, no, in no wise, born slaves neither of their fellow men, nor of their own appetites, but men. This great message Knox did deliver, with a man's voice and strength, and found a people to believe him. Scott's childhood, school days, college days, are pleasant to read of, though they differ not from those of others in his place and time. 
The memory of him may probably enough last till this record of them become far more curious than it now is. So lived an Edinburgh writer to the signet son in the end of the 18th century, may some future Scotch novelist say to himself in the end of the 21st. The following little fragment of infancy is all we can extract. It is from an autobiography which he had begun, which one cannot but regret he did not finish. Scott's best qualities never shone out more freely than when he went upon anecdote and reminiscence. Such a master of narrative and of himself could have done personal narrative well. Here, if anywhere, his knowledge was complete, and all his humor and good humor had free scope. Quote, an odd incident is worth recording. It seems my mother had sent a maid to take charge of me, at this farm of Sandino, that I might be no inconvenience to the family. But the damsel sent on that important mission had left her heart behind her, in the keeping of some wild fellow, it is likely, who had done and said more to her than he was like to make good. She became extremely desirous to return to Edinburgh, and, as my mother made a point of her remaining where she was, she contracted a sort of hatred at poor me, as the cause of her being detained at Sandino. This rose, I suppose, to a sort of delirious affection, for she confessed to old Alison Wilson, the housekeeper, that she had carried me up to the craigs under a strong temptation of the devil to cut my throat with her scissors and bury me in the moss. Alison instantly took possession of my person and took care that her confidence should not be subject to any farther temptation, at least so far as I was concerned. She was dismissed of course and I have heard afterwards became a lunatic. It is here, at Sandy No, in the residence of my paternal grandfather, already mentioned, that I have the first consciousness of existence, and I recollect distinctly that my situation and appearance were a little whimsical. Among the odd remedies recurred to, to aid my lameness, someone had recommended that so often as a sheep was killed for the use of the family, I should be stripped, and swathed up in the skin warm as it was flayed from the carcass of the animal. In this tartar-like habiliment I well remember lying upon the floor of the little parlor in the farmhouse, while my grandfather, a venerable old man with white hair, used every excitement to make me try to crawl. I also distinctly remember the late Sir George M. Dougal of Mackerstown, father of the present Sir Henry Hay M. Dougal, joining in the attempt. He was, God knows how, a relation of ours, and I still recollect him, in his old-fashioned military habit, he had been Colonel of the Greys, with a small cocked hat deeply laced, an embroidered scarlet waistcoat, and a light-colored coat, with milk-white locks tied in a military fashion, kneeling on the ground before me and dragging his watch along the carpet to induce me to follow it. The benevolent old soldier, and the infant wrapped in his sheepskin, would have afforded an odd group to uninterested spectators. This must have happened about my third year, 1774, for Sir George M. Dougal and my grandfather both died shortly after that period. End of quote. We will glance next into the Liddysdale raids. Scott has grown up to be a brisk-hearted jovial young man and advocate, in vacation time he makes excursions to the Highlands, to the border Cheviots in Northumberland, rides free and far, on his stout Galloway, through bog and brake, over the dim moory debatable land, over Flodden and other fields and places, where, though he yet knew it not, his work lay. No land however dim and moory, but either has had or will have its poet, and so become not unknown in song. Liddysdale, which was once as prosaic as most dales, having now attained illustration, let us glance thitherward, Liddysdale too is on this ancient earth of ours, under this eternal sky, and gives and takes, in the most incalculable manner, with the universe at large. 
Scott's experiences there are rather of the rustic Arcadian sort, the element of whiskey not wanting. We should premise that here and there a feature has, perhaps, been aggravated for effect's sake. During seven successive years, writes Mr. Lockhart, for the autobiography has long since left us, Scott made a raid, as he called it, into Liddysdale with Mr. Shortreed, sheriff substitute of Roxburgh, for his guide, exploring every rivulet to its source and every ruined peel from foundation to battlement. At this time no wheeled carriage had ever been seen in the district, the first, indeed, was a gig driven by Scott himself for a part of his way, when on the last of these seven excursions. There was no inn nor public house of any kind in the whole valley, the travellers passed from the shepherd's hut to the minister's manse, and again from the cheerful hospitality of the manse to the rough and jolly welcome of the homestead, gathering, wherever they went, songs and tunes, and occasionally more tangible relics of antiquity, even such a routh of old knickknackets as Burns ascribes to Captain Groves. To these rambles Scott owed much of the materials of his minstrelsy of the Scottish border, and not less of that intimate acquaintance with the living manners of these unsophisticated regions, which constitutes the chief charm of one of the most charming of his prose works. But how soon he had any definite object before him in his researches seems very doubtful. He was making himself at the time, said Mr. Shortreed, but he didn't ken maybe what he was about till years had passed, at first he thought a little, I dare say, but the queerness and the fun. In those days, says the memorandum before me, advocates were not so plenty at least about Liddysdale, and the worthy sheriff substitute goes on to describe the sort of bustle, not unmixed with alarm, produced at the first farmhouse they visited, Willie Elliot's at Millburnholm, when the honest man was informed of the quality of one of his guests. When they dismounted, accordingly, he received Mr. Scott with great ceremony, and insisted upon himself leading his horse to the stable. Shortreed accompanied Willie, however, and the latter, after taking a deliberate peep at Scott, out by the edge of the door cheek, whispered, Wheel, Robin, I say, do I el me if eyes be a bit feared for him now, he's just a shield like ourselves, I think. Half a dozen dogs of all degrees had already gathered round the advocate, and his way of returning their compliments had set Willie Elliot at once at his ease. According to Mr. Shortreed, this good man of Millburnholm was the great original of Dandy Dinment. They dined at Millburnholm, and, after having lingered over Willie Elliot's punch bowl, until, in Mr. Shortreed's phrase, they were half glorin, mounted their steeds again, and proceeded to Dr. Elliot's at Cloughhead, where, for, says my memorandum, folk were in a very nice in those days, the two travellers slept in one and the same bed, as, indeed, seems to have been the case with them throughout most of their excursions in this primitive district. Dr. Elliot, a clergyman, had already a large MS collection of the ballads Scott was in quest of. Next morning they seemed to have ridden a long way for the express purpose of visiting one old Thomas O'Tuzzlehope, another Elliot, I suppose, who is celebrated for his skill on the border pipe, and in particular for being in possession of the real Lil Two of Dick o the Cowie. Before starting, that is, at six o'clock, the ballad hunters had, just to lay the stomach, a deville duck or tway and some London porter. Old Thomas found them, nevertheless, well disposed for breakfast on their arrival at Tuzzlehope, and this being over, he delighted them with one of the most hideous and unearthly of all specimens of writing music, and, moreover, with considerable libations of whiskey punch, manufactured in a certain wooden vessel, resembling a very small milk pail, which he called wisdom, because it made only a few spoonfuls of spirits, though he had the art of replenishing it so adroitly, that it had. 
been celebrated for 50 years as more fatal to sobriety than any bull in the parish. Having done due honor to wisdom, they again mounted, and proceeded over moss and more to some other equally hospitable master of the pipe. Ami, says Shortreed, sick and endless fundo humor and drollery as he then had why him. Never ten yards, but we were either laughing or roaring and singing. Wherever we stopped, how brawly he suited himself to everybody. He I did as the lave did, never made himself the great man, or took any airs in the company. I've seen him in a moods in these jaunts, grave and gay, daft and serious, sober and drunk, this however, even in our wildest rambles, was rare, but drunk or sober, he was I the gentleman. He looked excessively heavy and stupid when he was foe, but he was never out o' oh, good humor. These are questionable doings, questionably narrated, but what shall we say of the following, wherein the element of whiskey plays an extremely prominent part? We will say that it is questionable, and not exemplary, whiskey mounting clearly beyond its level, that indeed charity hopes and conjectures here may be some aggravating of features for effect's sake. On reaching, one evening, some Charlie Shope or other, I forget the name, among those wildernesses, they found a kindly reception, as usual, but to their agreeable surprise after some days of hard living, a measured and orderly hospitality as respected liquor. Soon after supper, at which a bottle of elderberry wine alone had been produced, a young student of divinity, who happened to be in the house, was called upon to take the big haw Bible in the good old fashion of Burns Saturday night, and some progress had been already made in the service when the good man of the farm, whose tendency, as Mr. Mitchell says, was so perific, scandalized his wife and the dominie by starting suddenly from his knees and rubbing his eyes with a stentorian. Exclamation of by, here's the keg at last, and in tumbled, as he spoke the word, a couple of sturdy herdsmen, whom on hearing a day before of the advocate's approaching visit, he had dispatched to a certain smuggler's haunt, at some considerable distance, in quest of a supply of run brandy from the Solway Frith. The pious exercise of the household was hopelessly interrupted. With a thousand apologies for his hitherto shabby entertainment, this jolly Elliot, or Armstrong, had the welcome keg mounted on the table without a moment's delay, and gentle and simple, not forgetting the domini, continued carousing about it until daylight streamed in upon the party. Sir Walter Scott seldom failed, when I saw him in company with his Liddysdale companion, to mimic with infinite humor the sudden outburst of his old host on hearing the clatter of horses' feet, which he knew to indicate the arrival of the keg the consternation of the dame, and the rueful despair with which the young clergyman closed the book. From which Liddysdale raids, which we hear, like the young clergyman, close not without a certain rueful despair, let the reader draw what nourishment he can. They evince satisfactorily, though in a rude manner, that in those days young advocates, and Scott like the rest of them, were alive and alert, whiskey sometimes preponderating. But let us now fancy that the jovial young advocate has pleaded his first cause, has served in yeomanry drills, been wedded, been promoted sheriff, without romance in either case dabbling a little the while, under guidance of Monk Lewis, in translations from the German, in translation of Goethe's Gots with the Iron Hand, and we have arrived at the threshold of the minstrelsy of the Scottish border, and the opening of a new century. Hitherto, therefore, there has been made out, by nature and circumstance working together, nothing unusually remarkable, yet still something very valuable, a stout effectual man of thirty, full of broad sagacity and good humor, with faculties in him fit for any burden of business, hospitality and duty, legal or civic, with what other faculties in him no one could yet say. 
as indeed, who, after lifelong inspection, can say what is in any man. The uttered part of a man's life, let us always repeat, bears to the unuttered unconscious part a small unknown proportion, he himself never knows it, much less do others. Give him room, give him impulse, he reaches down to the infinite with that so straightly imprisoned soul of his, and can do miracles if need be. It is one of the comfortablest truths that great men abound, though in the unknown state. Nay, as above hinted, our greatest, being also by nature our quietest, are perhaps those that remain unknown. Philosopher Fichte took comfort in this belief, when from all pulpits and editorial desks, and publications periodical and stationary, he could hear nothing but the infinite chattering and twittering of commonplace become ambitious, and in the infinite stir of motion nowhither, and of din which should have been silence, all seemed churned into one tempestuous yeasty froth, and the stern Fichte almost desired taxes on knowledge to allay it a little, he comforted himself, we say, by the unshaken belief that thought did still exist in Germany, that thinking men, each in his own corner, were verily doing their work, though in a silent manner. Walter Scott, as a latent Walter, had never amused all men for a score of years in the course of centuries and eternities, or gained and lost several hundred thousand pounds sterling by literature, but he might have been a happy and by no means a useless, nay, who knows at bottom whether not a still useful Walter. However, that was not his fortune. The genius of rather a singular age, an age at once destitute of faith and terrified at skepticism, with little knowledge of its whereabout, with many sorrows to bear or front, and on the whole with a life to lead in these new circumstances, had said to himself, What man shall be the temporary comforter, or were it but the spiritual comfort maker, of this my poor singular age, to solace its dead tedium and manifold sorrows a little? So had the genius said, looking over all the world, What man? and found him walking the dusty outer parliament house of Edinburgh, with his advocate gown on his back, and exclaimed, that is he. The minstrelsy of the Scottish border proved to be a well from which flowed one of the broadest rivers. Metrical romances, which in due time pass into prose romances, the old life of men resuscitated for us, it is a mighty word. Not as dead tradition but as a palpable presence, the past stood before us. There they were, the rugged old fighting men, in their doughty simplicity and strength, with their hardiness, their healthiness, their stout self-help, in their iron bassnets, leather jerkins, jackboots, in their quaintness of manner and costume, there as they looked and lived, it was like a new-discovered continent in literature, for the new century, a bright El Dorado or else some fat beatific land of cocaine, and paradise of do-nothings. To the opening nineteenth century, in its languor and paralysis, nothing could have been welcomer. Most unexpected, most refreshing and exhilarating, behold our new El Dorado, our fat beatific lubberland, where one can enjoy and do nothing. It was the time for such a new literature, and this Walter Scott was the man for it. The Lays, the Marmions, the Lattice and Lords of Lake and Isles, followed in quick succession, with ever-widening profit and praise. How many thousands of guineas were paid down for each new lay, how many thousands of copies, fifty and more sometimes, were printed off, then and subsequently, what complimenting, reviewing, renown and apotheosis there was, all is recorded in these seven volumes, which will be valuable in literary statistics. It is a history, brilliant, remarkable, the outlines of which are known to all. The reader shall recall it, or conceive it. No blaze in his fancy is likely to mount higher than the reality did. At this middle period of his life, therefore, Scott, enriched with copyrights, 
with new official incomes and promotions, rich in money, rich in repute, presents himself as a man in the full career of success. Health, wealth, and wit to guide them, as his vernacular proverb says, all these three are his. The field is open for him, and victory there, his own faculty, his own self, unshackled, victoriously unfolds itself, the highest blessedness that can befall a man. Wide circle of friends, personal loving admirers, warmth of domestic joys, vouchsafe to all that can true-heartedly nestle down among them, light of radiance and renown given only to a few, who would not call Scott happy. But the happiest circumstance of all is, as we said above, that Scott had in himself a right healthy soul, rendering him little dependent on outward circumstances. Things showed themselves to him not in distortion or borrowed light or gloom, but as they were. Endeavor lay in him and endurance in due measure, and clear vision of what was to be endeavored after. Were one to preach a sermon on health, as really were worth doing, Scott ought to be the text. Theories are demonstrably true in the way of logic, and then in the way of practice they prove true or else not true, but here is the grand experiment, do they turn out well? What boots it that a man's creed is the wisest, that his system of principles is the superfinest, if, when set to work, the life of him does nothing but jar and fret itself into holes? They are untrue in that, were it in nothing else, these principles of his, openly convicted of untruth, fit only, shall we say, to be rejected as counterfeits and flung to the dogs? We say not that, but we do say, that ill health, of body or of mind, is defeat, is battle, in a good or in a bad cause, with bad success, that health alone is victory. Let all men, if they can manage it, contrive to be healthy. He who and what cause soever sinks into pain and disease, let him take thought of it, let him know well that it is not good he has arrived at yet, but surely evil, may, or may not be, on the way towards good. Scott's healthiness showed itself decisively in all things, and nowhere more decisively than in this, the way in which he took his fame, the estimate he from the first formed of fame. Money will buy money's worth, but the thing men call fame, what is it? A gaudy emblazonry, not good for much, except, indeed, as it too may turn to money. To Scott it was a profitable pleasing superfluity, no necessary of life. Not necessary, now or ever. Seemingly without much effort, but taught by nature, and the instinct which instructs the sound heart what is good for it, and what is not, he felt that he could always do without this same emblazonry of reputation, that he ought to put no trust in it, but be ready at any time to see it pass away from him, and to hold on his way as before. It is incalculable, as we conjecture, what evil he escaped in this manner, what perversions, irritations, mean agonies without a name, he lived wholly apart from, knew nothing of. Happily before fame arrived, he had reached the mature age at which all this was easier to him. What a strange nemesis lurks in the felicities of men! In thy mouth it shall be sweet as honey, in thy belly it shall be bitter as gall. Some weakly organized individual, we will say at the age of five and twenty, whose main or whole talent rests on some prurient susceptivity, and nothing under it but shallowness and vacuum, is clutched hold of by the general imagination, is whirled aloft to the giddy height, and taught to believe the divine-seeming message that he is a great man, such individual seems the luckiest of men, and, alas, is he not the unluckiest? Swallow not the sursa draft, O weakly organized individual, it is fell poison, it will dry up the fountains of thy whole existence, and all will grow withered and parched, thou shalt be wretched under the sun.